Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, September 13th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the mayor of Jackson says the boil water notice could be lifted in a matter of days. We have the latest on the city's water crisis. Then, the state auditor responds to questions regarding the welfare scandal, plus the intersection between mental health and art. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Crews are continuing to work to bring a plague Jackson water treatment facility back to full operation. A raw water pump that was installed at the OB Curtis treatment plant over the weekend had to be pulled back from the pump platform after it was determined it requires additional repairs. The Mississippi Department of Health is continuing its investigative testing in Jackson to monitor water quality. The distribution system is still not ready for full sampling required to call or clear that boil water notice. Mayor Shokwe Antalamumba says the repair and recovery process remains fluid. As we've talked about plans, as we've talked about things that we've put forward, understand that now that is a moving target because there are things that are being repaired, some that are stopgap measures, uh, and of course those are not our long-term solutions, and some that uh, are more prolonged or longer sustaining repairs that have been made. And so uh, I have asked that entire team. We have more technicians and professionals at the table now than we have ever had. I've asked them for a dashboard that reflects what are the temporary measures versus what are the long-term measures. That way we can adjust uh, our requests to reflect uh, that most recent information. And so I think that that is important. We intend on having a community meeting tomorrow. Uh, As you know, we always value the input of our residents. Three minutes on a city council microphone does not equal community participation. Uh, And so we like having these type of discussions uh, where we, that that, uh, often are housed in in many of our, our churches around the city, where we can have a full understanding of what the community understands and and what they don't understand and where we can fill in gaps and, and indicate to them where their city is headed. That community meeting is tonight at 6 at College Hill Missionary Baptist Church. Lamumba says stakeholders from all levels of government are welcome. We are inviting council members, the Hines County delegation, the health department, the governor, 
uh, Mima and FEMA, all to be present with us. Uh, we are extending that invitation so that uh, the questions that people have can not only be directed to city officials and whatever technical expertise we have there, but anyone else who has a hand in this process, we are extending that invitation for them to be there. I also want to let the residents know uh, that later this week I'm traveling to Florida to be a part of a Smart City Expo. Uh, the EPA Administrator, Regan, and other individuals uh, critical to obtaining our funding will be present. Uh, and so I look forward to continuing our ongoing discussions about how we make that a reality uh, and how we uh, are able to create the funding stream that is necessary for all of the repairs that we know have to be made. This emergency is unique to other emergencies that have, that have had federal de uh, declaration, uh, and so it will require creativity in order to provide that, and so I look forward to maintaining those conversations. Lamamba says he's hopeful that the boil water notice will be lifted in a matter of days rather than weeks. Jackson residents who are experiencing discolored water from their taps are encouraged to report that to the city. Coming up, the state auditor responds to questions regarding the welfare scandal. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Investigations into one of the largest fraud cases in state history continues. State and federal officials have been looking into how leaders and affiliates of the Department of Human Services misspent tens of millions in welfare funds since 2017. Yesterday, the official who first made the scandal public over two years ago spoke at the Stennis Capital Forum. State Auditor Shad White says his office is willing to investigate as deep as the case requires. We're continuing to audit DHS every single year, so we'll have another audit this year. Um, in terms of the criminal investigation, I can't really give you a, an update on that because our standard practice is to not comment on ongoing or potential ongoing investigations. Uh, obviously, you see just from public court filings that uh, four individuals have pled guilty. We've got one trial, I believe, coming up in November and then maybe another trial after that as well. So that's the that's the rough overview sketch of, of what I can say. I mean, I, I'll tell you this. Uh, ultimately, you know, we're going to get to a point where uh, the decisions about who faces criminal charges will fully be in front of prosecutors, and I just remind everybody they make those decisions. We don't get to make those decisions in the auditor's office. Prosecutors make those decisions, uh, and we're committed to fully investigating the case uh, as far as it goes. So uh, to, to, to give the public confidence that, uh, the, that that is happening, we have given access to the FBI, everything that we have. They've been able to see everything that we have. So they're going to continue to chug along. Uh, I suspect that uh, a new U.S. attorney will get settled in here pretty soon, and so uh, you'll have you know fresh eyes looking at everything, too. So there's a lot of moving pieces, but that's, that's the kind of rough overview. 
As more about the scandal came to light, White identified former Governor Phil Bryant as the whistleblower. As Governor Bryant appointed John Davis as executive director of the Department of Human Services. What I said at the time was that the governor was technically the whistleblower under the law. So if you read the whistleblower statute, the statute is pretty plain. It says a whistleblower is a person who reports a criminal conspiracy activity to a law enforcement entity. And then it lists out examples of law enforcement entity. And those examples are the state auditor's office, the attorney general's office, um, local DA's office. So technically under the statute, when I was asked, okay, well, who's the whistleblower in this? The usual answer is, well, we don't talk about who the whistleblower is because there's a statute that says we protect that information. But in this case, it was obvious that the whistleblower wanted that information out there. So got asked the question, just said the truth. Now, the public can decide about how much credit they want to give Governor Bryant because what was disclosed, and this has been publicly reported, what was disclosed was a sort of narrow band of what we ultimately ended up finding at DHS. That's for the public to decide. It's not for me to decide. Y'all can write about it, and, and people can decide however much credit they want to give him for that. Uh, but no, I mean, there's no other answer that I could have given when asked the question, hey, who's the whistleblower? I can either tell you that person wants their identity confidential, or I can just tell you who falls under the statute. White was appointed by then-Governor Phil Bryant and previously worked on Bryant's staff. Since being identified as the whistleblower, Bryant has been implicated in some of the plans to funnel TANF funds to pet projects of Brett Favre and Family First. Reporting from Mississippi Today also uncovered text messages between Bryant and Director Davis discussing which funding would be approved and who would get it. White says prosecutors and the court of public opinion are welcome to make their own conclusions, as you heard, regarding Bryant's involvement. We don't know everything that's going to come out ultimately, and I would just let the public decide how they interpret his actions over the course of that entire thing. Uh, you know, really, really, if you think back about uh, the, the corpus of events here that happened, a lot of it has been put out in the news. Uh, and so I think anybody who's reading the newspaper can look at that and say, okay, well, uh, people in DHS did this right and they did this wrong. People in the governor's office did this right and they did that wrong. And they can decide. That's not for, for me to decide what somebody's legacy is. Uh, it's not for me to decide what sorts of charges anybody faces, too. So those are all sorts of the sorts of things that uh, are not going to happen from the state auditor's office. My job is to identify the facts, answer the basic questions about what happened, and give that information to you in as much as I can. The indictments against the accused at the state level were originally filed in Hines County under District Attorney Jody Owens. Auditor White explained that choice with reporters yesterday. Typically, I'll just say this. Whenever we get any sort of, of criminal case built, our typical first choice is to go to the local DA. Uh, and the reason is that the local DA, generally speaking, this is not for all of them, the local DA tends to analyze cases faster, move faster. And in this particular instance, we thought, you know what? Um, there's the potential that millions of additional dollars will still flow to the people that we are looking at. So we need to get the money cut off as quickly as possible. So that was the real logic behind going to 
uh, District Attorney Jody Owens. Two, I I've known Jody Owens. I thought he was going to do a good job. Uh, and three, I thought it would give the public confidence to know that um, you know, there's some high-profile Republicans who uh, were in that group that we had investigated. Why not give this case to a Democratic DA uh, to give the public confidence that he wasn't going to pull up short or not? He wasn't going to fail to ask me the question, well, what about this? Well, what about that in the room? So that was... Those were the reasons that I went to the DA in the first place. And then, of course, I had alerted uh, U.S. Attorney Mike Hurst about a week before that this was going to happen, then, you know, turned everything uh, over to the FBI so that they could work their process. And, of course, they eventually send what they find up to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, and now, since then, the AG's office has been given our entire file as well. So we really got three pools of prosecutors who can do whatever they want to with this case. That's State Auditor Shad White. Coming up, the intersection between mental health and art. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From children's education to gripping drama, documentaries to comedy, MPB Television brings the world to Mississippi. With local stories, cooking, health, and music, MPB Television takes Mississippi to the world. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi Museum of Art and the University of Mississippi Medical Center are joining forces in an effort to understand and treat mental health. The institutions are recipients of a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Sciences. The $250,000 grant will support the upcoming exhibition called What Became of Dr. Smith? along with public programming and expanding art therapy partnerships. Dr. Ralph Didlake is the Director of Center for Bioethics and Medical Humanities at UMMC. He explains more with our Michael Gidry. While art therapy is a very important part of this, it's only a part. The, the grant is going to look at a number of things uh, really focused on bringing mental health issues into better focus. Um, using art as uh, as a venue or a platform for us to better understand mental health uh, issues in our community and how um, art and the traditional medical sciences can do a better job in uh, understanding mental health issues, recognizing them, treating them, and trying to lower the stigma, the, the social stigma uh, associated with mental health issues. How can a discipline and platform or medium like art, uh, how can it help in both understanding and helping treat mental illness? Well, th that's, that's a great question. It can, it can do that in a number of ways. One, it can do what art does so well. It can, it can through a visual medium, create a, an object or a space or um, uh, a representation that forces us to 
ask questions about difficult issues, force us to reflect on ourselves. Uh, Art does that very, very well uh, across uh, all domains. But in mental health, if we have uh, representation of mental health issues in art, we can come together around those representations and uh, foster discussions, um, help each other understand each other through uh, exploring these artistic representations. Um, one of the ways that this grant is going to help do that is um, uh, Mr. Noah Satterstrom, who is a an artist from Nashville, is doing a series of of artworks around one of his forefathers uh, who was a patient at the old asylum and by exploring that gentleman's story through art it will create opportunities for us to have conversations around mental illness what is mental illness where does it fit within our human experience how can we better understand it both as a community and as caregivers and better care for those who have mental disorders. 20th century ideas about mental health uh, captured in, you know, literary works like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and and I think sensationalized like media archetypes of what mental health was uh, in the in the mid 20th century. Uh, what does this approach and it seems pretty novel. Maybe you can maybe explain how novel it is. But what does this approach to understanding and treating mental health say about about where the collective medical understanding of mental health has come, you know, since the early to mid 20th century? That's a very rich question. Uh, a lot of the uh, literary and film works that you've referred to, like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, are uh, much more about the institutionalization of care. Um, actually, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was directed, the film was directed by someone who escaped uh, a communist regime, and a lot of that film was about political control. But beyond this notion of mental health being a horrible experience under any circumstance, uh, the more modern understandings are that uh, this experience uh, can be organic, um, can be um, situational, uh, but it's very individualized. Um, people have to understand that mental health problems are experienced individually, and uh, one person's experience informs the way that they experience their illness. Um, you, you, we are learning that across all types of health care, whether it be cancer care or diabetes care or mental health care, that a person's context, uh, the experience they bring to the illness, impacts the way they experience that illness. Um, that's very, very true for mental health care. And if an individual can express that experience through art or look at an artwork and through their analysis of it make connections and express things that they normally couldn't express, then art becomes part of the therapy. On the flip side is, is 
uh, the use of art to address caregiver stress. Uh, we've all seen very publicly through the COVID pandemic the stresses that were put on physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and even the housekeeping staff through the difficult care of uh, these patients and overloaded wards and um, demands beyond anything that we ever dreamed of. So can art, either the appreciation of art or the creation of art, help to um, uh, deal with the stresses that the caregivers have and prevent burnout? and help them to have better understandings of their patient's experience. While I have you, as director of the Center for Bioethics and Medical Humanities, uh, is there anything you'd like to say that I haven't particularly asked you about that you feel is important to share about the work of the center and, and that field in particular? Uh, yeah, our, our center from the very beginning, we were founded in 2008, and from the very beginning we have... Uh, structured ourselves and selected programs that would add value to the medical center's regular missions, clinical care, education, and research. So everything we do is meant to add value to those programs. Uh, we have now embedded ethics training uh, across all of our schools, all six of our schools, um, every year of medical school now has a, has ethics training. We're deeply engaged with the School of Dentistry and the School of Health-Related Professions. But beyond that, we feel very strongly that the humanities, these fields of, of anthropology and uh, uh, sociology, philosophy, um, literature, can strongly inform our education and our clinical care and even our research to make us better at what we do through the understanding of the context, the human context in which our patients come to us for care. All right. Well, Dr. Ralph Didlake, Director of the Center for Bioethics and Medical Humanities at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, thank you so much. This has been uh, enlightening. Thank you very much. We appreciate your interest. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.